That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now. From the beginning. Welcome to BS, Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. You know this, and maybe your listeners don't know this, but, you know, I don't have a family. I, I'm a single guy, um, a proud gay man, um, and I will probably never have a family, but um, this firm is my baby, and I love it. Welcome to BS, Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is my friend, Bob Major, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Hey, Merle. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm good. I am so excited to have you on uh, on the podcast. I just want to say that, um, let everybody know that we are you are just, we are, you are celebrating the 40th uh, year anniversary of Major Lindsay in Africa. And um, that's just, it's just awesome. It's exciting. Exciting. And I'm so happy to have you here. It'll be 41 next month. Oh, wow. That is amazing. I mean, you know, they say if you can make it through the first, what do they say, seven years? No, that's a marriage. if you can make it through the first, I think, yeah, seven years of a business, then you'll probably yeah. be okay. But 41, wow, that, that's impressive. So let, let me just tell folks a little bit. Uh, I, I think your reputation precedes you, but let me just give folks a little bit of information, background information on you. Um, but Robert Bob Major um, graduated from Stanford University, I think, uh, with a degree in political science. Um, and then went on to the University of Texas School of Law. After graduating from the University of Texas, um, you were an associate at Wilmer uh, for about five and a half years or so. And then what we really want to talk about is you started uh, MLA. But did I did I leave anything out, Bob? Yeah, I went in from Wilmer. I came back to California and I went in house with a company called Saga Corporation in Menlo Park, California. And I was their securities counsel. And I did that for a year and decided that the 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 Securities and Exchange Act of 1934 and I were we just had to part company. A little too boring for you, Bob. <laughs> a little too boring, and um, as it turned out, I read an article in the American Lawyer about headhunters, legal recruiters, and uh, a term I use interchangeably with headhunters, by the way. Um, yes. And um, I went home that night and to my little apartment in San Francisco, and I thought you know, this can't, that job sounds really interesting. And the more I thought about it, uh, the more I was excited about it. And 
grabbed a legal pad and a pen and wrote out a business plan. And five days later, I walked into my boss's office and and resigned. Wow. And so that was in, I think, 1982, correct? Correct. Yeah. That's right. And 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 for those of for anybody who doesn't know, I just assume that everybody who listens to this podcast knows, but Major Lindsay in Africa is the world's largest and most experienced legal um, search firm. Um, as far as I'm concerned, it's the best, but I could be just a little biased. Um, <laughs> and 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 Bob is the the founding uh, founding mem- member of MLA. So. So, Bob, um, we'll talk more about that, but I always like to start the podcast by asking our guests a little bit about their history, their personal history, kind of like who who influenced you most uh, growing up? Where did you grow up? How did you end up in California? You know, just, just those kind of things, you know, who, who made major impacts on you in your life and because we usually find that there's some adult who who does that yeah you know it uh it's interesting because i always use that same question when i'm interviewing candidates i call it the log cabin question um okay. you, know, you grow up in a log cabin uh, <laughs> but i did not i grew up in uh, uh dallas texas and uh, My parents divorced, and my father moved to California, to San Francisco, where he uh, met my uh, stepmother. And uh, then my I grew up with my mother, and uh, in Dallas. And then ultimately, my when she remarried, uh, my stepfather was transferred to Oklahoma City, and that was probably when I was in the fourth grade. So I I graduated from high school in Oklahoma City. So I have my sort of my feet, sort of one foot planted in Texas and the other foot planted in Oklahoma. Um, I went to college at Stanford, um, which really was a transformative experience in my life. I mean, a kid from Oklahoma going to Palo Alto was uh, a real eye opener. And I must say, when you talk about you know, the sort of the tipping point of one's life, I really have to uh, pinpoint the Stanford experiences, what really influenced me the most in terms of my thinking, my outlook on life, my willingness to take chances, um, my natural competitiveness. Um, so it was, it was terrific in every respect. I don't know if you know we have Oklahoma in common. I did. I I yes, I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My entire extended family is still in Oklahoma, and I lived uh, in Oklahoma. We lived in Oklahoma City until I was about four, and then and we moved to Michigan, and then from Michigan to California. So anyway, that that's just just one more thing. Another uh, point of intersection. Yes. So absolutely. anyway, I, you know, having grown up in Oklahoma and Texas, and then um, having gone to college in the West Coast on the West Coast, you know, the East Coast was a big mystery to me. And I decided after law school that I wanted to try it out. So my original plan 
was to go to the East Coast for three years and then return to California where I was going to practice law and live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a summer associate at Morgan Lewis and then decided to go to Wilmer instead um, for a number of reasons which aren't really relevant, but um, had a great time at Wilmer and was one of the luckiest I was probably the dumbest associate they had, but I was the luckiest one. And it proves the point somewhere that it's sometimes better to be lucky than smart because I was able to get absolutely amazing projects, starting with drafting the Constitution of the Northern Mariana Islands as my first project as an associate. And uh, my biggest case or biggest matter was an internal investigation that we conducted on behalf of Playboy Enterprises, uh, where I was assigned Hugh Hefner. And uh, that was an 18-month investigation that was, you know, had just chock full of stories about that. But I will leave that to another time. After Oh, my God, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, it really was. I mean, it was storybook law. Um, along the way, I did uh, Federal Communications Commission work, uh, some antitrust work for IBM, uh, and so just really, you know, met with just stupendously impressive lawyers. Uh, worked under them, uh, learned how, learned a cruel reality that I thought I was a really good writer. Uh, but when I got to Wilmer, I realized that I was, you know, quite mediocre, in fact. And so I set about to try to improve my writing skills, um, which really that I have to give a nod to that firm in in terms of teaching me some really valuable lessons about uh, wordsmanship. Um, I think that anyway, happens to a lot of us, right? You're like even the yeah, best writers coming out of these out of grade schools and whether you, you know, were at the top of your class or the middle of the class, when you go to these big firms, I just remember, you know, everything I wrote came back red. It was just bleeding with red. (laughs) And I thought, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be one of the best and the brightest. And it's like, but that has nothing to do with it. It's it's all about getting well-trained. Yeah. And humble. Yes. So after at that point, I was there about five years, and my that was obviously two years past my original plan to return to California. <laughs> so uh-huh. I decided to act on the plan, and I, I interviewed uh, in California, in the Bay Area, and ended up at this company called Saga Corporation, where I was their SEC counsel. A year of doing that really convinced me that I didn't – I was really unhappy practicing law. Uh-huh. And um, that's when I read that American Lawyer article, and um, kind of the rest is history. Um, In the early days of the firm, um, we didn't have much, we had no money. And uh, so it was about a year and a half before we made our first uh, deal, our first placement. Um, Wow. And... uh, Thereafter, the month, the next month, we made another placement, and then gradually things uh, took hold, and 
and there was a you know a, an upward, modestly upward trajectory. And at, uh, but at what point did you bring in? At what point did you bring in um, Marty Africa? Well, Marty was at the time I started the firm, uh, the placement director at Bolt Hall, the uh, University of California, Berkeley. And My alma mater, yeah. Your alma mater. And after two years, um, I got a call from Marty and who wanted to have lunch. And I thought, what could this mean? And we went out to lunch and Marty had said that she was ready to do something else with her life beyond Bolt, but she did not want to lose all of her contacts and her, her sort of Rolodex and her reputation. You know, she had a very fine reputation right. uh, nationally. And she wanted to know if I would consider, you know, having her join. And mm-hmm. I mean, I must say that was, you know, a, a, another real big tipping point in my life, because when Marty joined the firm, which was in 1984, um, the firm had went from really a being a local Bay Area search firm to one that was receiving calls from Paul Weiss and Covington and Perkins wow. Cooley and Latham and all these, you know, storied law firms that, you know, I certainly knew of and respected tremendously, but, you know, I did not count them as clients. Well, overnight, they became clients through Marty. And so, again, that's another instance of you just have the Midas touch. It's just luck, you know, the, it, do you think it's like how much of it is being in the right place at the right time and how much is it, you know, your courage and willingness to, to just, you know, uh, uh, trust yourself and do something different? Well, I think there's, you know, parts of all of that. Uh, there's another big part of it, which was, doing things the right way. Um, you know, one of the things that Wilmer had taught me and, and just my schooling was just having standards that are, you know, quite, quite high and working really hard to um, reach those standards. For example, when, when we started, uh, when I started, uh, one of a friend of mine was working in a major law firm in San Francisco, and she brought me into the recruiting administrator's office and showed me a sheaf of uh, headhunter submissions, most of which, I would say 99% of which, simply had the headhunter's card stapled to the candidate's resume with the words for your consideration scribbled on the card. And maybe a stamp of the legal recruiter's office on the resume, lest the firm be tempted to treat the (laughs) resume as, you know, property other than that of the headhunter. Right. Well, I was pretty appalled by that. And instead of that, um, 
I took the tack of writing very extensive, customized cover letters that went with every candidate's resume. And after, I think, about a year, I got a letter from um, the hiring partner of Hanson Bridget, a guy named Steve Schneer, who I don't think I've ever met. Uh, and it was one of the greatest compliments to date, you know, that I had ever received, which was, he said, you know, you're, the letters I receive from your firm are without exception the most interesting and revealing about the candidate of any other search firm that we use. And so I, I, it struck me that, you know, there's a lot of ways to run this business. And Marty heard that when she was investigating search firms, um, mm. our name kept on coming up as really a, sort of a cut above everybody else. And that's actually what led her to telephoning. Wow. And so you, I mean, that's the standard now. That's, that's the standard, you know, I mean, obviously there's some, some recruiters who haven't got that memo and don't do it, you know, uh, well, but, you know, I, you know, you basically created that, Standard. That's amazing. Right. I mean, and you know, one of the things that when in those days, Merle, the, the since there were no barriers to entry to our profession, the there was quite a, a range of uh, headhunters that were in you know in the profession of legal recruiting, uh, ranging uh -huh. from you know some very very good ones to some very bad ones. And I had the fundamental belief that uh, instead of treating, you know, our practices as, as trade secrets to be, you know, hidden from everybody, we should try to elevate the profession. And as a result, we became very involved in our trade association, where every year we, Major Lindsay in Africa, or whatever it was called at the time, would really give seminars to our peers on wow. our best practices. And the intention was to, you know, bring the level of recruiting up, way up. And um, I think we, we were very, very proud and, and happy to be involved in that effort. We weren't the only ones, of course, who, who did that kind of thing, but um, we were certainly very active in that endeavor. So, so I have to tell you, Bob, and, and, and I want to everybody to, to know this, that I consider you like one of the nicest, most humble people I know that I've ever met. Well, thank you. Um, Thank you. And, you know, and that comes through, I mean, it, it, all you got to do is Google you and, and there's like not that much that comes up. You know, you look at your, your, uh, your LinkedIn uh, profile and it just says partner, Major Lindsay in Africa. You know, it's so refreshing to meet somebody with your type of accomplishments 
who's so humble and so genuine. Um, and, and, and the other thing I wanted to say is what made me want to do this um, podcast is, you know, we just came back from our uh, annual meeting in Arizona and, you know, we took this big group picture uh, for the, you know, uh, commemorating the 40 years. And, and then you came back and you posted on LinkedIn, you know, how struck you were by the fact that you started this thing 40 years ago with just you. And now there's hundreds of people and it was so real and so emotional. I actually, it it brought tears to my eyes and I was like, I got to get him on here and let everybody experience the Bob Major that I know and love. So thank you for doing this. Um, well, those are really, really nice words, and I appreciate them. And, I mean, you you, you know this, and maybe your listeners don't know this, but, you know, I don't have a family. I, I'm a single guy, um, a proud gay man, um, and I will probably never have a family, but – um, this firm is my baby right. and I love it and I will, um, I'll do anything for it, uh, to protect it, to improve it. But one of the things I learned a long time ago is that you surround yourself by people smarter and better than you are. Yeah. And you have to reward them for it. Um, else, they will they will become your competitors. And so one of the things that I think has been a very, very unique part of our firm, people say that we've, we invented the legal recruiting business. That is absolutely untrue. There were lots of legal recruiters in New York and Washington and Los Angeles in 1982 when I started this firm. But the one thing that we did do is that we broadened it to be a a national and then ultimately an international firm. The only way you could do that is to get really, really good people who see tremendous value in being with the firm as opposed to being on their own. Uh, and we created that secret sauce um, that, you know, has allowed us to expand and, and continue to attract people like you, Merle, that, you know, could be easily doing, you know, this business or another business very successfully on their own. Uh, but if you, if you create value and you create and make it fun – uh, and, you know, you provide, you know, people with a, with a living um, and you care about them and you make sure that they know that you care about them. There's a stickiness to our firm. It's a familial yeah. type of place that is actually, you know, people within the industry recognize is something, you know, quite unique. Well, and, and you know what, that kind of brings me to, to 2008 when, um, 
MLA combined with Allegis group. Um, and how was that a hard to see? How how did that all? How did that happen? And and you know, how's it going? Well, it happened when we had a CEO who started implementing certain reforms and changes within the firm, creating more offices, uh, creating uh, infrastructure. Uh, hiring man- professional managers, hiring a professional IT department, marketing, all that kind of stuff, finance. And those are typical hallmarks of a firm that is readying itself for an exit strategy of some type, whether it's mm-hmm. going public, uh, as some firms have done, or more often, an acquisition. Um and the acquisition was um, an effort to really find a, a, a partner or a parent that was very much in line with our values. And I will tell you a story, and I'm not even sure if our parent, Allegis Partners, knows this, or Allegis okay. knows this, but when their name was floated to us as being interested in um, acquiring uh, us. I immediately called a, a friend of mine, old line, old time friend of mine who had worked at one point for one of these Allegis groups. And I asked him, I said, you know, what, what do you think of these guys? And he said, they're very good. They're extremely professional. They're extremely ethical. They are go-getters. But the one thing that I see as a misalignment is that Major Lindsay in Africa is extremely uh, diverse, in, mm-hmm. especially with the number of women in senior positions. And there is not that much diversity uh, that I could, that he could see at right. our parent. And I think that that has, we have changed them, I think. Yes, yes. And so it, yes. To, to, when, you, when you say, how is it going? Um, the, when they acquired us, basically, I think they took the very, very correct position. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. And they left us alone. Now, obviously, they change out, you know, they put in their own, you know, CFO and their own IT guy and their own marketing people and ultimately their own CEO. But, and those are changes to be expected. But the thing that we were most afraid of is that we had left, you know, the, the more corporate America, the straight-laced Brooks Brothers suit, white shirt, you know. Yeah. All that stuff, we had left that behind, and we wanted, you know, to continue to enjoy our freedoms, and we did not want to give those up. And they have been very true to their word, Um, and they have embraced our commitment to diversity, which was yet another Marty Africa, you know, mantra. And so... 
that is a, you know, I would say that it's, it's been a splendid marriage. So, so this is, I, I love the way these things just flow, right? And so you talked about allegiance, you know, your concerns about um, diversity and women, but talk to me about, you, you know, you get, you, you, you proudly said that you're a proud gay man and, and, was that a concern at all? And, you know, how has, has your identity in terms of, of LGBTQ, I mean, how, how has that um, uh, been in this, in, you know, in this uh, profession, in the law, with allegiance? You know, how, how have you managed that and how do you mar- manage the stereotypes associated with that? That's a, it's a great question. And I, you know, the, on the one hand, uh, the law profession is very, very conservative, uh, very slow to change. Um, they will, they will be, they can be forced into it as any number of initiatives around the country have forced Try. You know, uh, <laughs> new thinking. Um, yeah. In terms of diversity uh, or as defined by ethnicity or gender, but the uh, the sexual orientation thing is often sort of left behind. Yeah. And it's a, you know, it's, it's yet to be fully realized, but, uh, and I've been both in our San Francisco office and our Houston office. And those are two very different environments. Um, and you have to be a, a little bit of a chameleon, but you also mm-hmm. cannot be, you know, untrue to yourself either. Um, one of the ironic things, Marty once told me, she said, you know, Bob, you may be gay, but you can pass as straight. Exactly. Yeah. And I said, you know, Marty, there's a, that's a two edged sword because you know, sometimes you people will say things to you, revealing their true feelings about, you know, LGBT people, not knowing that, you know, you're one of them. Yeah. So it's a, it is a two-edged sword, but I, you know, there are tremendous changes. Um, and fortunately, I'm in a firm that has you know, embraced all of its people. We live under a big, big tent at Major Lindsay in Africa uh, where, you know, you're free to, you know, be who you are. And it's encouraged here, here. and it's, it's championed and it's, it's celebrated. Years ago in San Francisco, one of the major law firms in in the city, which I won't name, was, you know, very stodgy and very, very slow uh, to recognize the value of their the gay lawyers. And another firm, a major competitor of the, that previously mentioned firm, and one of their competitors was Morrison Forster. And yeah. Morrison stepped into the breach and said, we'll take that editor-in-chief of the Law Review, who happens right. to be a lesbian. <laughs> you know, we'll take that 
Supreme Court clerk who happens to be a gay man. We'll take that, you know. And after a while, you know, the the law firms that were slow to recognize the value realized that, you know, MoFo was, you know, kicking ass on the recruiting front. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I actually had to decide between MoFo and Cooley. Um, and uh, that, that, it was a hard decision. I went to Cooley, but, but MoFo, you know, was definitely considered at the time the most progressive um, law firm nationally, I think, and particularly in, in, San, you know, in, the, in California because it was a San Francisco firm, considered a San Francisco firm at the time. But I, I don't yeah. know if you know my story. So um, I actually was, was uh, running the office of, a, of one of our competitors um, and was about to hire somebody that, you know, had been laid off by MLA. That's the only way I could get anybody from MLA. They had to get laid off. And I called uh, for a, a reference. He gave me a name of somebody at MLA to call for a reference. And I, I called that person and he was like, yeah, he's fine. You should hire him, but you should come work for us. And <laughs> then it, and then introduced me to John Cashman and John and I met and ultimately John was like, yeah, you should come work for us. And I said, well, the only way I really would consider doing that is if I could focus on diversity. And he said, okay. And that was it. So yeah. that, that really, you know, is a testament to everything that you just said. Yeah. And it also aligns well with something that my parents always told me, which is, you know, find a job you love and you'll never work another day in your life. Yeah. You know, right. If you can get something, you know, you're passionate about diversity in your case, um, you know, MLA generally in my case, uh, you know, it's not work. You know, this is something that, you know, you jump out of bed every morning, you know, kind of pinch yourself that you're you know, lucky enough to be doing this, you know, and you, and you throw yourself into it with, you know, such exuberance and enthusiasm and, you know, a willingness to go the extra mile um, that, you know, it's, it's a, it's something that is, you know, and we're, we're in the business of counseling, you know, people on their careers. And one of the most interesting things I found out, I find about my business as a recruiter is that there is such disenchantment among lawyers. Um, there's a lot of ha very happy lawyers, but a lot of them, you know, don't find their way to our offices. But there's right. a number of very disenchanted lawyers that whose stories just reinforce, you know, you know, our decision to do this business and and celebrate really in a in a strange way the fact that we are so darn happy doing it. Right. Right. And so how has, I mean, there's a lot that has happened over the last two, three years, right? I mean, the world has just kind of been turned upside down and, you know, you, you, the, the, 
the pandemic is probably one of the big one or, you know, two or three things involved in that. You've been in this business for a long time. I mean, you saw something very similar, I would think, with the AIDS crisis, you know, back in, in the 80s. You know, how have things changed? You know, what, what, are, your proje- what are your projections for, for, you know, what's next? I think we'll be fine. Um, you know, I think we have a, a there's a great resilience uh, among people, especially really smart, hardworking, um, principled individuals who will always sort of bounce back. I think the bigger question, and and I'm sure that the managing partners and the managing attorneys and the corporate law departments are worried about this. How do you create culture when you have so many stay at home, you know, workers that are not able to forge the cultural bonds that one does over the, you know, proverbial water cooler on Monday morning when they're talking about, you know, the, the big game between Stanford and California. Um, So, those those are big big questions and if you look at a you know firms like it was the old McCutcheon firm and you know when they were around or Latham I think right now or maybe Kirkland that have very very strong cultures um, they achieve so much benefit from those from that cultural adhesion it's easier for them to recruit you know, the, the, they retain their employees longer. The, the lawyers and the staff people, you know, are willing to work overtime and, and work weekends because they're, you know, it's for the team. It's for the, you know, it's, there's so much at stake more than just money. And so everybody is, looking for that secret sauce. Every law firm and every corporate law department wants to have that. And I think that the the search for that secret sauce is been retarded by COVID and it's you know and it's aftermath, which is the 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 stay at home, you know, situation. I mean, I, I will, I agree with that. I will say, though, that, you know, I look at everything kind of through a, a a little bit of a different lens because I talk to so many, particularly people of color, you know, um, yeah. and, and, and women. And, you know, one of the, 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 the positions that some folks of color have taken is that it's been helpful um, because, you know, people are talking to folks that they ordinarily might not talk to. You know, they can go on a Zoom or they can talk, they can reach out to people and it doesn't, it's not as personal. Like you have to stop by somebody's office to to do that. Is there a discomfort with that? You know, it, can, can you find other things in common that maybe you might not have had in common, you know, just over the water cooler or, and, and I know that, that, you know, it, it's just a different way 
you know, of looking at it. But the other thing is I was reading an article this morning about millennials and how law firms, you know, are trying to figure out how to deal with millennials. And it really reminded me of, you know, just generally millennials seem to feel the way us as people of color has all have always felt. And, and, and the question is, how do you, you know, like what you're saying is, to me, it comes down to belonging. You know, how do you, how do you make everybody feel like they belong? And then it's exacerbated by the fact that you're not in person. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting you bring up the millennial issue because I used to think that that was really a, you know, a crock of BS. Um, no pun intended. The, <laughs> I the, like it. Because uh, I really couldn't get my head around why millennials were any different from my generation or any other generation. And I was at a law school reunion and one of my classmates um, is married to Roberta Katz, who is a profoundly smart woman um, who had just written a book about millennials. And so we were having a beer and I said, now, Roberta, come on. You know, you know, no, I'm not, I'm not tape recording this, but isn't this really ridiculous that millennials are are any different? And she said, no, Bob, it's absolutely, it's absolutely the case. And she said, I'll tell you how, I'll give you one example. She said, in the, when you and I were in school, we would sit in a class, and the teacher would be up at the head of the class, standing and would basically, you know, give the lesson and we would write it down and then we would regurgitate it at a later time. She said the millennials grew up in an educational system where the teachers sat on the floor with their students around them. And rather than in a um, sort of didactic way, of of telling them the story or the lesson basically invited discussion that led to sort of a group uh, discovery of what the lesson was to be. And she said, though that was that one little thing. And she said, there are many, many, you know, there are dozens or hundreds of other things that, also had a very formative influence on the millennial way of thinking. But she said that one little thing has, has made the millennials approach to learning very different from the way you and I had it in, you know, those ancient times. And I right. and I was struck by that. I mean, I re, I could see that example as being true. Right, and see what and 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 I, and I think that that's the perfect example, and and that's why if if you can make that leap from that, you know, culturally and and ex and through it and experience wise, 
you know, if you think about a person of color and having them having a different culture experience or a different learning experience, it's very similar. And, and things are changing. I think, you know, everybody benefits from this change, but I do think it's painful. Yeah. Now, I'll give you another example based on the, the, the ethnicity. Um, you know, years ago, and this really relates to why lawyers belong in the C-suite to advise on business matters, because, you know, lawyers are smart, you know, um, they, they see things, for, we're taught and trained to see things from different angles, because, you know, the way Wilmer always taught me, you know, you, you anticipate, even if the, your opponent doesn't make a very good argument, you make the best argument for them and then you dismantle it. Right. So, but, but a, I remember years ago, one of the wine companies uh, decided that they would make a fortified wine with very, very high alcohol content. And they decided some, you know, marketing idiot uh, decided that they would start marketing it in basically African-American neighborhoods. Mm. And ultimately, it turned out to be a public relations disaster as well as, you know, could, could be anticipated. And right. the company spent millions and millions of dollars trying to undo their mistake. It had the happy result of, you know, creating new, you know, uh, initiatives of outreach, you know, to disadvantaged neighborhoods by, you know, this particular company. And it served as a as a prime example of what not to do for many, many other companies. But, you know, that is this is the way we can learn from each other and we can avoid right. mistakes. To be able to, you know, understand, you know, gender issues. And I, I, I was on a panel years ago. It was a LGBTQ uh, panel. And we had, you know, five or six um, uh, panelists there, you know, you know, lesbian, a couple of gay men, one law firm person, one in-house person. And... There was a and there was also a trans um, person, a male to female, and a, a question was raised. Uh, somebody in the in the audience raised their hand and asked me. They said, "Bob, you know, all of what you say, uh, what the panelist says, it sounds all very lofty and and nice, but you know, in your honest opinion, is is Brenda the trans person?" Is, does she really have a legitimate shot at a great job with one of your clients? Wow. And it was a it was a horrible tough moment. And I said, no, she doesn't. And I said, and here is the real tragedy: our clients ask us for smarts and communication skills and leadership. And, you know, sense of humor, uh, affability, Brenda has all of those. 
but they but the clients also ask for bravery. And I point out to you that there is nobody, you know, braver, you yeah. know, in my experience, than Brenda sitting right here, yet, you know, she is not going to get that chance to show her stuff, you know, in most employers. And I, that's a tragedy. That is a human tragedy. Now, this was, Merle, uh-huh. this, you know, happened, you know, 10 years ago. And I think in the okay. last <laughs> two years, dramatic changes have happened for trans people. Yes. And I'm not not at sure. and not at expense though, but you know there's right. been some really tr- tragic things I happening. Think, but I that's... think there would be. I don't know if the result would still be the same as ten years ago, but I I would wager that there would be a very long discussion among serious-minded people within these within that employer about whether they should take this step. Yeah, I, and the fact I do that too. I mean, longer, longer discussion than it than previously, where it was just a quick judgment. No, she's she's not a fit here. That curious yeah, word, the, fit. that quote unquote fit word. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. the fact that it's a longer discussion, a big win for trans rights, I think. That's that's an awesome uh, observation, and thanks for for sharing that. So let's talk about something you know a little lighter, a little bit more fun. Fun. I want to know what makes you happy. What 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 brings you joy, Bob? Because you are again one of the happiest, you know, most humble, nicest people I know. You know, how how do you pull that off? Well, you know, I think my parents. And, and other role models uh, were very instrumental in developing, a, you know, a sense of wonder and a sense of uh, wanting to learn and a, a sense of, you know, the glass is half full rather than half empty. It's all about mind over matter in many ways. Um, you know, you, people can choose to be happy or optimistic. People can Uh choose, you know, certain, you know, pathways to, to a lighter, you know, life. Uh, If they, if they insist upon, you know, negativity, negativity will find its way to them. Yeah. Um, But I, I just believe I'm a big, big believer in, you know, optimism. My mother uh, my actually my stepmother, you know, she would rent a car in Paris and park on the median in front of her hotel. <laughs> That's sheer optimism. <laughs> that, it, <laughs> that the car is going to be there in the morning. That's hilarious. That 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 is hilarious yeah no i i'm a firm believer in that as well you know and i'm also a firm believer that you know the only person you can control is you right you can't you can't control anybody else um and so it's it's a big waste of time to spend a lot of your time you know as hard as it is you know to to 
try to change people or, you know, really worry about, you know, what they're thinking or what they think of you. It, but that's hard. It's, it's, it's really hard to do, especially when you're an overachiever. And I, I think especially when you're young. Yes. Um, you know, eventually one of the one of the great things about getting older is that, you know, you see that that truth being repeated over and over again. Only worry about the things you can control and not control. Um, yeah. I mean, I my I had a former boyfriend who was forever checking the weather, you know, four times a day. And I, I would just shake my head and I would say, what difference does it make? You know, the only thing that we need to know about the weather is whether to put on a jacket or not, or to carry an right. umbrella. Right. But uh, he, he actually enjoyed, you know, meteorology. So I guess he had a, a good excuse for it. That's hilarious. So, oh, so and then, my other question for you is, what's your favorite city? I know, I know you've lived all over the world. Um, I've been with you in other countries. Um, what you know, you what's your what's your favorite city in the world? Well, it's that's you know, it's kind of where I am at the at the moment. I mean, there's some I love places that. that you know. Quite frankly, I don't really care to go back to, but you know, I do love Paris. And yeah, you and I have been there. At the, at the same yeah. time, and it's endlessly fascinating. Um, you know, I love San Francisco, but I, you know, I'm not unlike my parents who thought there was really the parent that San Francisco was the center of the universe. I don't really believe that. Um, I think there are there are so many cities that have you know great great charm. Uh, last Christmas. Uh, my boyfriend and I, we went to, uh, we spent it in Mexico City, which is a terrific, yeah, I heard that's wonderful. wonderful. Yeah. Um, you know, I, my heart sort of soars whenever I go to Seattle, uh, where we have a wonderful office and great colleagues. And, you know, you can see Mount Rainier and I mean, it's, and eat the great food and, and Chicago is fantastic. Beautiful. Uh, New Orleans it's is beautiful. great. Yeah. Um, we're just, it's a cornucopia. You know, there are very, very few places that, you know, don't really put a smile on my face. Um, and there are some ex- absolutely exceptional places. Um, if you, and I don't want to evade your question, but if I, you know, <laughs> if you had a gun to my head, I would, I would probably be in Paris. Yeah. And I'd be there right there with you if you let me come back. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, San Francisco has changed a lot. When I moved to San Francisco, it was like, it felt kind of like a European city in, in the U S but now it's, you know, everything's so homogenous everywhere. And, and San Francisco has changed. It still has that, you know, beauty that, you know, kind of unparalleled um, beauty. But in terms of the feel of the culture, um, I would definitely say it's changed. And, and I, I agree. Paris is, Paris is pretty, pretty awesome. Um, yeah. San Francisco, we've got work to do in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I love, 
I love what you said about it's wherever you are. I mean, it sounds like, you know, I don't know if you know, but I've practiced Buddhism, you know, off and on. And that's a very Buddhist concept that, you know, be in the moment and, you know, appreciate and be grateful for the now. Um, yeah. Or anybody who meditates, you know, that's what you're you're always thinking about is what's what's going on right here in this moment, because you can't control anything else. It's, it's, it's something that I work on. It, you know, is that, does that just come naturally to you? No, I think a lot of it was, has to do with my legal training. And uh, I think lawyers are very, very good at stepping outside of their, of themselves and taking a look at an argument or a case or a problem, um, you know, with a absolutely brand new perspective. Um, we're forced to do it, as I referred to earlier, the training I had at Wilmer, we're forced to do it often with our, you know, opponents, you know, uh, arguments and litigation. And you're certainly in a transactional or corporate, you know, arena you're always wondering what are the key points or deal points that are important to, you know, the, your, the person across the table from you. Um, so I think lawyers, you know, are very much in the habit of having this sort of out of body experience, if you will, of examining things um, really de novo in a way without preconceived um, notions or biases or, you know, that's the other thing. We're, we're very attuned to bias um, uh -huh. or, you know, things that might, you know, ruin the, you know, the purity of the argument. So I, I really, my hat's off to the legal profession in many ways for, you know, bring that kind of experience to me and, you know, allowing me to, you know, if, if I'm having a bad day, just, you know, say, wait a minute, I'm not having a bad day. You know, it's a, right. it's a good day. I'm alive. Yes. You know, I, uh, the best thing I heard once was a, a older lady, somebody, you know, how are you doing? And she said, baby, just keep going to bed, getting up and everything's good. <laughs> It is good. It's a good um, life. It's all good. And you've, you have made, um, you've changed a lot of people's lives, um, both inside MLA and outside. And, and I applaud you for that. Uh, we're, we're pretty much at the end of our time here. I, I hate to end. Um, we might have to do this once every year. But um, the last you know question where to find I have for I do. I do. Hopefully it's Paris. I'll come over and, and we'll do this in person in Paris. Um, but, but my last my last question for you is, you know, because you've been able to do so much and make uh, decisions that are different and you've been able to stay authentically you, what words of encouragement or advice do you have for others about embracing their authentic self? Be brave. Courage, huh? Courage. Don't, do not fear failure. You know, it's interesting. 
um, having grown up sort of professionally as a legal recruiter in Silicon Valley, uh, it's interesting to see our clients there and their attitudes toward failure. You know, everybody is quite proud. Everybody there is actually quite proud of having gone through the, you know, the, uh, the throes of, you know, of failure and all the experience that comes with that, with that by being with a company like Excite at Home or, or Snowball.com or whatever it was. <laughs> um, and when I talk to our, some of our clients in the Midwest um, or in the Southwest in Texas, you know, failure is, you know, is, is viewed differently. They, mm. they wonder why did you go to a company that, you know, would ultimately fail? What, what was, what were you thinking? And that's not the right question. The question is, you know, please tell me, educate me on all you learned from that experience. Yes. Yes. And how are you going to apply it? you know, other than, you know, simply to avoid the same missteps, but how are you going to apply it, you know, to the, to our present enterprise? How are you going to make us better? And the people who embrace failure and maybe not embrace it too enthusiastically, but, <laughs> you know, the people who embrace it in the sense that they can learn a lot from it, I think are going to step more lightly and they are going to have a, a a much better attitude toward, you know, their life. And I think they're going to take chances that, you know, are going to be a win. I mean, if I hadn't, believe me, when I left the legal profession, you know, stop being a lawyer, it was, you know, it was a, my parents were not happy. I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> and and breaking the news to them that that was going to happen and telling them I was going to become a legal recruiter was, you know, a very, very unhappy moment. But it was, you know, now they think I'm, a, I'm the genius of the world. Right, right. So, right. you know, it's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? Yeah, and courage. I mean, I I couldn't agree with you more. You know, just having the confidence and the courage to be yourself and be true to yourself. Um, that you know, and and really, you know, always be thinking about you know. At least I'll have no regrets. Um, I think that that's a beautiful thing. And I think you, what you've done in your life and with your life is a beautiful thing. And I just want to thank you for being here to BS with me today, Bob. Well, thank you, Merle. You're a, uh, you're one of our stars and um, it's just always a pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. And thanks to everyone for listening until the next episode. Remember, that everybody is different and different is good. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning.
We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.